0: This morning is a text in church Sunday, so we're going to put the slide up with the phone number on it. If you've got questions that come to mind as we work through the sermon this morning, you can text those questions into that number, and I will look at those at the end of the sermon and uh, try to quickly scan them and pick one or two to answer. Uh, so as we as we work through the passage, think of what questions, not only might you have, but what might be a helpful question for other folks in the congregation to have answered too. So. That number will be on the bottom of each slide in a small font, but uh, if you want to write it down right now, because it's easy to see, you're welcome to do that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come and place ourselves under the authority of your word. We, we recognize that you have divinely inspired the scriptures. They are authoritative, that they are words of life to us, that they are uh, showing us the way that we should walk. The things that we need to know, the things that we need to do, uh, the, the way that you think about us, the way that you love us and care for us, the way that you want us to respond to you in love and obedience and faithfulness. So we ask, Lord, that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to, uh, to hear from you, that we would know what it is you're communicating to us as individuals and as a church. You'd help us to rightly interpret your words and know how to apply those to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are working through the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. Um, I I say that about each book that we go through as a church, and every time I start into a new book and spend a bunch of time reading through it, reading through it, reading through it, and mapping out the the sermon series, we're going to do this chunk then, and here's the main point of this passage, it makes me love the book so much more. So what I'd like to do is I'll just I'll just quit the whole preaching thing and you guys do all the preaching work because then you will love the the books too. You'll have to do all that work and it'll grow in you that love. Some of you are thinking, eh, I could probably do that. Others are thinking, okay, it's my last Sunday here. I'm, I'm not doing that. I understand. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts is like part two of that story. So in the Gospel of Luke, Luke wants to tell us what Jesus did and what he began to do and all the way up through his death and his resurrection and almost to his ascension where he rises up to be with the father. Then Acts picks up with the conversation right before Jesus ascends to the father and tells the story of how the church is birthed and grows through the first roughly 40 or 50 years of church history. How it goes from a small group of scared individuals hiding in a room in Jerusalem to cover basically that whole map that's on the screen there in that image. To, to not saturate it, but to have a presence of the gospel in that whole area in just a few short years, relatively speaking. Luke loves to get his facts right. He's a historian, he's a doctor, he's a detail, smarty pants guy, and he wants, he actually says in the beginning, he says, I wanted to make sure that in the book that we call the Gospel of Luke and then in the book of Acts, that he's got the details right and that we can trust and know for sure that Jesus is who Luke says he is and has done what Luke says he has done and is continuing to work in the way that Luke says he's working. Two weeks ago, we looked at how uh, Jesus gathered together his closest disciples and he gave them final words before he ascended to the Father. We saw in Matthew, we have some of that with what we call the Great Commission about going, making disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ooh, Caleb, we're ringing a lot there. And... Uh, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded them. And Jesus promises to be with them, with us, for the rest of our lives. Then in Acts, we get a little more of that story. Specifically, Jesus tells the disciples, wait in Jerusalem. So your mission is to go, but the first thing you're to do is wait. And wait in the place where those who killed your master are looking to kill you. Go wait in Jerusalem, wait for something in particular. That particular something is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, is given to the disciples, given to all Christians time after that. And Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus says you're to wait for the coming promise of the Holy Spirit so that you will be empowered to do the very thing that I just told you to do. I'm telling you to go, make disciples, and you need power to do that. That's a supernatural power that you need. It is the Holy Spirit. And so you will wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come. We read that in Acts 1.8 two weeks ago. It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So increasing concentric circles there spreading the gospel all around the known world. But before they go, they are to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Today, in Acts chapter 2, we see how that promise is fulfilled, how the Spirit comes to those baby believers and empowers them. Does anybody know the name of the Jewish Holy Day that coincides with the death Jesus. When did Jesus die in the Jewish calendar? Anybody know? What was that? Passover. Yes, Passover. So Passover was, at the time of Jesus, it was centuries old in its tradition, but it comes to us out of the Exodus, so second book of the Bible. The Jewish people have been enslaved in Egypt for a long time. God's going to lead them out of slavery, and he has this series of confrontational conversations with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, where Moses says, let my people go. And he says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. Let my people go. I'm not going to let your people go. And, and each time God brings a punishment, uh, a curse, a plague on the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder until you get to the last one, the 10th plague, and God does the unthinkable. He kills the firstborn in the whole land of Egypt. Does your picture of God have enough room for something like that? Can you fathom a God who is so holy, so pure, so righteous, so sovereign over the whole world that he can be completely just by wiping out the firstborn of every family in a whole nation? The people of Israel did not receive that judgment that night on the Passover. They were instructed by God to take a lamb, kill the lamb, as weird as it sounds to us, smear the blood of the lamb on the frame of the door around their house, and that when the angel of death comes that night, he will pass over each house marked with the blood of the lamb. That's where we get the name Passover. The Passover celebration then had been celebrated for hundreds of years from the time of the Exodus to the death of Jesus where Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the picture of Passover where he is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is slain. His blood is shed and spread on the cross instead of a door. Jesus refers to himself as the door And just as the people of Israel at the first Passover were spared judgment, were given mercy because they were under the shelter of the blood of the Lamb, all who would enter through the door of Jesus into the family of God by the blood of the Lamb are passed over for judgment today. It is not a coincidence that Jesus' death coincides with Passover Now Passover was also a feast day, a celebration. It was a first fruits feast at the beginning of the harvest season in the spring, unlike us um, the the climate of Israel is such that you got two very distinct. Harvest seasons. And so in the spring, you've got this harvest season, and Passover lines up with the first fruits, where the people of Israel celebrate the beginning of the harvest. It is also not a coincidence because Jesus is the first fruit of the new kingdom. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first of many brothers and sisters in the new kingdom of God. And it's on purpose in God's sovereign plan, the way He structures the calendar for all of history that that lines up perfectly with the death of Jesus. Fifty days after that Passover day is another feast that came to be known as Pentecost. See the word "Penta" in there, five, 50 days. That was an end-of-the-harvest feast. And so, as we pick up in Acts chapter 2 today, it's 50 days after the death of Jesus, and the, the people, the Israelite people and those who have converted to the Jewish religion, they have gathered back into Jerusalem. Some of them just stayed that whole time because they've traveled from way far away, and if you're, going to make, if you're going to travel for months, you might as well be there for Passover and for Pentecost. But Jerusalem is filled with people who are trying to follow the Jewish religion, whether they're born as Jews or converted in, and they're, they're ready to celebrate this end-of-harvest feast day. But God has some plans for this day of Pentecost that nobody in the city of Jerusalem could possibly have imagined at that point. God is going to fulfill his promise of bringing the Holy Spirit, not only as a a temporary gift or an outpouring of power on the church, but to actually dwell in believers moving forward. So if you've got a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at 1 through 21 today. This is on page 909 if you're looking in one of the Black Pew Bibles. So Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. So all of Jesus' followers, the 12 disciples, the other men and women who followed Jesus around, a few extra stragglers, they're together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, that's pretty weird in and of itself, but it's going to get weirder. The disciples are gathered together in a room. There's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it's helpful to know that the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, as in pneumatic, as in air-powered, so it's breath or wind, and so as Luke is writing this, he sees, you know, in his original language, the the beauty of how this all comes together, where the Spirit of God shows up as the sound of a mighty wind, the pneuma shows up as the sound of a pneuma. He goes on, verse three. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's really interesting. That doesn't happen every day, right? So Let's look at the three things that took place here. If if this is new to you, if this story is a new idea to you, you may be thinking, what is wrong with these people? That they would come together, they would listen to this, and they would actually believe that this happened, because this sounds like like a fairy tale. It sounds like a weird sci-fi, low-budget movie, right? But Luke wants us to know that this actually happened, and I fully believe that it does. So what are the three things that took place right now? First, tongues of fire appear and hover over their heads. Now, you may remember that John the Baptist, when he's dunking people, getting them ready for Jesus to come and do his ministry, Jesus walks up one day to the Jordan River. The crowd gets quiet, and John points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also says of Jesus that he first of all, he says, I'm not the Messiah. He says, there's one coming after me. And that one coming after me, he says, I'm not even worthy to, to carry his sandals. And then he makes this crazy claim, Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And when he said that, everybody around him went, what in the world are you talking about?" We don't understand what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and we don't like the idea of being baptized with fire. What are you talking about, John? Three years later, it is fulfilled in the story that we're reading right now on that day of Pentecost, where we see flames of fire appearing above the heads of the disciples, and the things click. Oh, that's what John was talking about. Now we understand. And a few of them thought, I'm glad I didn't use a whole lot of hairspray today it would be a bad situation. Actually, it doesn't say that it's actually fire, but that it appears like fire. That's the way that he describes it. So we've got the fulfillment of that fire prophecy, then we've got the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit prophecy. That's the next thing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is a world-changing moment. The Spirit of God had been active right from the beginning. If we Go back to Genesis 1, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep at the moment of first creation of the world. Spirit of God is active there, and he's active all through history. But the way that he becomes active in this moment in Pentecost is completely different. He has even come on people and empowered them, like King David going out and slaying Goliath. He does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet what happens at this moment on the day of Pentecost is a completely different category. We come to understand through the rest of the witness of the New Testament that when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of them. And this is the moment when that first happens. The Spirit comes upon them, comes in them. This is the promise from of old finally being fulfilled. We're told in the New Testament that this is This is permanent. This is a seal. The Spirit is given to us as a seal, a a stamp of authenticity and guarantee for our salvation. The Spirit in us is now permanent. But for much of history before that moment, it was kind of a fleeting thing. Now He comes on them in a new kind of power. The third thing that happens in those two verses is that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, or gave them the ability to speak. Now, this would have been a total shock to them, and we'll see in the next few verses that it's a total shock to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, too. Um, Imagine you're, you're in a foreign country, like a really foreign country, like Pakistan, right? and you're, you're, you've been walking through the mountains from village to village for weeks, and you haven't heard anybody speaking English for weeks. And you come into a village, and there's some guy who's speaking fluent English to you, and he's as surprised as you are, because he's never spoken English before, and yet he's got, he's got it down. It's perfect. That's, that's the kind of shocking, surprising thing that's happening here, and it's happening in multiple people all at the, the same time. Bryce, would you come up here? I want you guys to, to meet Bryce. This is Bryce Henry. I've got a microphone for you, Bryce. And you guys don't know Bryce, but if, if I said, Bryce, w- would you greet the congregation in, in Portuguese? What would you do? Bom dia, Deus abenço. Okay. Let's turn that down a little bit. Let's do that again. Bom dia, Deus abenço. Okay. And what does that say? Good morning. God bless you. Okay. Would you assume that he was just supernaturally empowered to speak that, or would you assume that he had somehow learned Portuguese before? He'd learn Portuguese, right? Yeah, we just assume that. Is that the case? Yes. Where did you learn Portuguese? Brazil. Okay. So Bryce went on a short-term mission trip to Brazil, and uh, you were there for how many months? Uh, I was there for 40 days. For 40 days. That's a good biblical number. Yeah, that's what they decided on. And so you picked up some Portuguese there. Yep. Okay. Um, At any point in your travels in Brazil, uh, did God supernaturally empower you to speak fluent Portuguese way beyond your ability to to study it? No. Okay. Bummer. I would have made a better story. I'm sorry. Okay. That's all right. (laughs) Please give Bryce a hand. Thank you, Bryce. (laughs) Bryce hopes to go back to Brazil again for a longer mission trip in the future, and uh, wouldn't it be nice if you could skip all of that language learning curve and just immediately be able to speak fluent portuguese that that would be incredible that's what these guys are experiencing here in this particular passage they're given a supernatural ability to speak what we'll see here are natural languages so verse 5 now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speaking his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Notice that Luke is in detail mode here. He, this, is, this is Luke's personality coming through. He doesn't just say uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and Libya. He has to say the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. He wants to be really specific about where these people are coming from. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that is converted to Judaism Cretans and Arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God so Luke tells us that people from all over that region of the world all over the known world are in Jerusalem probably for the those feasts that we talked about earlier and they experience this supernaturally empowered speech of the disciples. They come running to find out what's going on. And they are recognized, the, the speakers are recognized as Galileans. So, this next slide here shows you a map. You've got the Dead Sea on the bottom. You've got in bold Judea just to the left of the Dead Sea there. And, and right above there is the city of Jerusalem. It's really hard to see because I forgot to put a star there for you. And if you go up to the top, there's the Little Sea of Galilee and the region around it, like the county of. Galilee, and the people who are in Jerusalem hearing them speak in their own languages, recognize that these guys are from Galilee. So it must be maybe the way they dressed or their accents or what maybe the way they smelled, who knows? But they recognize them as being from the hill country of Galilee. It would be like today, if a bunch of Kentuckians walked into church and they started asking directions to somewhere in Versailles. We would immediately recognize them as being from Kentucky because of their accents and because they're wearing Coonskin caps, right? And so we we would know that they are Kentuckians just as they knew that these were Galileans. They recognize them as basically country boys from the hill country of Galilee. They don't expect them to be particularly educated. There's no reason for them to think that these are sophisticated, you know, multinational people who've got friends all over the world and they've learned all these languages and so they're like, what in the world is going on? Bubba is speaking my language and it doesn't compute for me. Luke tells us where these visitors are from and here's the map from the ESV study Bible to show you this is God at work to jumpstart the spreading of the gospel. All of those areas are in Jerusalem at the moment when the Spirit is given to the church in the specific way of being able to speak in all these different languages and people from this whole area. you get Northern Africa, you've got Egypt, you've got um, what is today Turkey in the, Asia, in the area of Asia as labeled on the map there, Crete, Greece. You've got uh, what is today Iraq and even Iran. All of these people are represented at that moment. They come together like, what is going on? How can I understand these country boys from Galilee? They are amazed. Verse 12 actually says that. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So they, they look at the situation, they take in the details, and some of them come to the conclusion that these men are drunk. Now this doesn't make any sense to me, because drunkenness makes you stupider, right? It doesn't give you the ability to speak languages that you've never, at least real languages that you've never learned, right? And yet that's the only way that they can make sense of this. What is going on here? The only thing that makes sense to me is that these men must be drunk. But Peter, Peter, leader of that first group of Christians, standing with the eleven, the other of the twelve there, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., the day they started reckoning at 6 a.m. He said, look... Nobody's drunk at 9 a.m. And that may or may not be a convincing argument, but that is what Peter says to them. He says, they're not not drunk. And then he's going to go on and he's going to quote from the Old Testament. Now this might be surprising to you if you know and love the character of Peter because he has not shown himself to be like the Bible quoting, stand up in front and teach everybody what the Old Testament says kind of guy. He's consistently sticking his foot in his mouth, and yet here, as part of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he stands up, and he reaches back into the Old Testament, and he grabs from the teeny little book of Joel, the little thing near the end of the Old Testament. It's three chapters long. He grabs out of that, and he quotes from Joel as a way of explaining what is happening here. So many years before, God had inspired the prophet Joel to write these words down as a promise for the future. Peter now quotes it, and in his sermon he says, this is being fulfilled right now in front of you. They're not drunk, this is Joel being fulfilled. He's going to quote from this book, and he's going to refer to this thing called the Day of the Lord. And that was, for centuries, a greatly anticipated day for the Jewish people. They expected that God would someday bring victory and sovereignty of their own nation and everything would be put back together the way it was supposed to be in the nation of Israel. God would judge all the godless people of the world and that would be the day of the Lord. Peter is going to give us insight into that. He's going to say, not only is the day of the the Lord, a judgment on all those other nations out there, but it's actually a judgment on the people of Israel, because now all those distinctions are gone, and it's not a question of whether or not you are a Jew or a Gentile, it's a question of whether or not you are in Christ. And actually, much of the book of Acts deals with that, that God has opened the doors to the Gentile people to come into the kingdom of God, and we see it starting right here in chapter 2. Peter's going to tell us of the grace and the mercy that God shows to these nations instead of just judgment. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, prophecy is when God speaks through a human in order to deliver a message. It could be actually spoken out loud, or it could be written down, or it could be both, which is the case of Joel. Joel would have preached his prophecy to the people that he was living with. It's also written down for us so that we can benefit from it today. Joel says that this day is coming. There's a future time when God is going to dismantle barriers. He's going to say, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you are welcome in the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit is poured out on you as we see on this day. So both your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Age, he said, doesn't matter. It's, it's young and old that will have miraculous dreams and visions. Even economic class doesn't matter. It's the servants are getting in on the action here, too, according to Joel. And that great day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, Joel says. This is not a declaration of universal salvation. He's not saying everybody in the world is going to have the spirit poured out on him and everybody's going to be saved. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that all kinds of people, all these different categories that we have, and he just went through some of them, all these different categories don't matter for this. That the spirit of God will be poured out on all people, not just the Jewish people, as everybody was expecting this prophecy to be about, but all people, Jew, Gentile, male, male, Female, young, old, rich, poor, all of that. God pours out his spirit on all of these people. What else happens? 19. And I will show wonders in, heaven, in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day more interesting stuff, more sci-fi movie kind of stuff. Now, we know that at the time of Jesus' death, there was an unnatural, or it would be more accurate to say a supernatural darkness that came upon the land in the middle of the day for three hours. We can see how that is part of the prophecy that Joel is saying here, and Peter's quoting. But as for those other things, we have to wonder, I mean, some of them sound like natural things, like eclipses, right? You know, the red-colored moon, We've seen that even just the last few years, we've seen that a few times, right? So we have to wonder, so are all of these things fulfilled? Have all of these things happened? Is Peter simply saying, look, Joel said this would happen, it has now happened, all of these things are done, this is now the day of the Lord, or is he leaving that open for the future? And the key to understanding it is to go back right to the beginning of where we get the quote from Joel. In verse 17, he starts off, In the last days it shall be, God declares, and then he goes on with everything that we just read. So we have to ask, what are the last days? We tend to think of that phrase in like an end of the world, like Jesus is coming back in two minutes. This, these are the last days. Sometimes we look at what's happening in the world around us, and you know political things and social things, and we think, it can't go on much longer, right? Some of you have had that thought multiple times in recent years, like this has to be close to the end. We must be in the last days. And you would be correct, more correct than you think though. So humans have divided up history in different ways. Christians have divided time in such a way that there are like, we could say phases or large seasons of time. From this day of Pentecost, moving even to the present day, we've been in what some church traditions would refer to as the age of the church or the church age. Others would say we are in the last days. It's not, this is not specifically saying that when you see the Spirit poured out on all people and you've got the different classifications going down, that that is the day of the Lord, but it is part of the last days days we are in the last days and have been since this day of pentecost when will those last days end when will the last days last days happen like the really the the crescendo at the end the things that we read about in revelation and all that when will that stuff happen the end of the last day we don't we don't get to know that they may start today it may be years, hundreds of years. We don't know. And how anxious we feel about what's going on in the world and how we think, man, God has to be calling this an end soon. Christians have thought that many times over the last 2,000 years. Someday, a generation going to be right about that. And it's really going to be the end. But for 2,000 years, we've been waiting, and this, this promise, this fulfilling of, of Joel is still in process. Some of it has happened. Some of it is yet to be fulfilled, in my opinion. So we've got just one last verse in Acts and a few thoughts to wrap us up. This one last verse is what I consider to be the most important part of this passage. As sensational as the whole language, things is, and the fire on top of their heads and all that, those things served a purpose. They were not the purpose themselves. They served a purpose and this last verse in 21 tells us what that purpose was. Peter continues to quote from Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So don't get too wrapped up in what was taking place sensationally there on Pentecost. Yeah, it's miraculous, it's amazing. God, you know, he's launching the gospel all over the known world through that. But it's not about these guys speaking in different languages. It's not about the the crazy tongues of fire above their heads. It's the Spirit being poured out into the lives of the disciples so that they can proclaim the gospel summarized here that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the point of what's happening here in Acts 2. So to make sure that we all understand what that means, we want to ask a few questions who's the Lord. What is Peter talking about? Is he talking about just this general idea of God, or an anonymous higher power, or just pick whatever deity you want? Next week, we'll see that Peter wants us very clearly to know that Jesus is, and he says it this way, Lord and Christ. So when Peter says, quoting Joel, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's not saying, you know, pick your Lord, pick your God, pick your higher power. He's saying all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. It's an exclusive claim. Only the name of Jesus. What will be the, what will they be saved from? They'll be saved from the consequences of their sin and rebellion. So all of us have rebelled against God. We've done it in our own creative, unique ways, but we're all rebellious against God. And God in his perfect holiness and his perfect justice is completely just in destroying us all. So if we go back to that idea of the, the Exodus and the Passover, it should not be amazing to us that God destroyed or brought judgment on a whole bunch of people that night. What should amaze us is that God had mercy on people who were equally corrupt, equally sinful and rebellious. And today, it should not surprise us that there is an eternal judgment, that there is, a, there is a hell in which those who are separated from God spend eternity. What should amaze us is that God spares any of us, has grace and mercy on us because none of us deserve it, and yet he makes a way through Jesus that we call on the name of the Lord, we can be saved from all of us. That, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to call on the name of Jesus? Is it You just you send him a text message and you address it, Hey, Jesus, is that what it means? The name of Jesus, that, that phrase we've talked about a few times in the last couple months, is the idea of, of his, his reputation, like somebody has a name in town. So it's a combination of who he is and what he has done. It's, it's the summary of him as a person is his name. And so when you you call out to Jesus in mercy, save me, Lord Jesus, you are agreeing that he is who he says he is, that's the person of Jesus, and he has accomplished the work that is needed to save you, specifically his death on the cross in your place as a substitute. The person and work of Jesus, you combine those together, you get the idea of the name of Jesus. So when you're trusting in calling out for mercy um, in the framework of the name, the person and work of Jesus. Peter says here, quoting from Joel, that you will be saved. Friends, if you're here this morning and this is not yet true of you, that you have not called out to the na- on the name of Jesus to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins, to be adopted into the family of God, if you have not yet done that, I would urge you to do so today. That today can be that day of Pentecost for you and when Jesus has saved you after you cry out to him that the Spirit of God will come in and dwell in you and empower you and seal you. That could even be today. Uh, Matthew, I'm going to skip over a couple things here. It's running short on time. If you're if you're already a Christian, you may be wondering, what am I supposed to do with this particular passage, right? So I, I understand, you know, the pastor just gave the invitation that those who are not yet in Christ can come into Christ today and be saved. But I've, I've been in Christ for a long time, and I've heard this story of Pentecost, and what am I to do with it? Well, first of all, be comforted that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is inside of you. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is inside of you and will not leave you and he has sealed you for the rest of eternity. And not only that, he has empowered you to do the same mission that was given to these guys 2,000 years ago. That mission is to go and make disciples the whole world. Spirit in you is the power that you need to do that. That is good news because if God just said, here's your mission. Now, be smart enough, be clever enough, be in, you know industrial enough, be entrepreneurial enough, figure out how to get everybody to know the gospel of Jesus, go do it. That would put us in a hopeless state. But instead, he gives us God the Holy Spirit inside us to empower us. It is unlikely that any of us, anytime soon, are going to suddenly be empowered in the same way as those in Jerusalem where we can speak another language that we have not learned. God could certainly do that. You could do it right now if you wanted to, right? But he empowers us in other ways. Each of you here is a unique mix of how, how God, uh, how he, he designed you from the beginning And how he has modified you throughout your life, through circumstances, through study, through people speaking into your life. He has put you together in such a way that you have a unique gift mix, a unique personality, a unique set of abilities, a unique way of trusting and relying on God so that you can be, through the power of the Spirit, on mission for him. So m- maybe it's natural abilities. Maybe you got great balance, or maybe you're really good with math, or may- whatever it is, right? You just, you got it from your mama and, and you have it, right? Maybe it's supernaturally empowered things. Right? Like before, before coming to Christ, you were lousy at something, and yet God has empowered you and He's made you, you know, at least mediocre in something so that you can, you can use that to serve and go out on mission? How has God made you and remade you so that you can go out on mission right now? How has the Holy Spirit empowered you and shaped you so that you can go about the business of making disciples around the world? It's different for each of us, but there are a few things that I would like to suggest are common to each of us. That would be the Bible and prayer. Why the Bible? We know from 2 Timothy that all Scripture, speaking of the Word of God, the Bibles, is breathed out by God. There's that pneuma word again. It's inspired. See, even in the word inspired, in spirit, it's there. So the Word of God is inspired. It's breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is going to equip us and prepare us for mission, wouldn't it make sense that he would use Inspired Word of God as a primary tool to get us ready for mission and absolutely would. God has used the inspired words of Scripture to build His people and send them out on mission for thousands of years. What about prayer? Do you ever have trouble praying? Of course you do. Do you ever think I don't know what to pray? Maybe you've even you know sat there and silent before God and you've I have no idea what to pray. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to thank you for. I just it's like you're just groaning. Lord, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. You know that the Spirit is active in that moment too? That the Spirit teaches us to pray. He hears our prayers, but he also prays for us, on behalf of us, through us. This is Romans 828, 826. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I mean we don't know what to do. We're stuck. What do we, what do, we do, God? I don't know what even to pray. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, and notice it's himself. It's not itself. It's not this impersonal force. It's, it's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Spirit Himself intercedes, prays for us with groanings too deep for words, so when you don 't even know what to pray, you know like, God, I want to pray, but i don 't know what to pray i don 't know how to pray, the spirit of God is there, interceding for you with groanings that you couldn 't even put into words, so at least those two things like ignore your your natural giftings, ignore the the, the things that you 're good at, at least those two things can be used by all of us to prepare ourselves to strengthen ourselves, to go out on mission. The Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Holy Spirit interceding for us as we come to God in prayer, even though we don't know what to pray, those things get us ready to send us out. And then as far as each of you, that individual gift, I know how God wants you to go out and obey Him on mission. You get to figure that out yourself. But I want to give you guys an example of somebody who's doing that right now. So, Katie Elliott, would you come up here, please? We're going to pray for Katie Elliott in a minute. She is starting off on a new adventure of ministry. It's through a program called Weekday Christian Education in Dark County. It's referred to as ROC, and, uh, which means, what was it?
1: Reaching out to Christ kids. Reaching out to Christ
0: kids. All right. So this is a ministry that's been going on for almost 100 years now in Dark County, since 19... 19- it was in the teens, even. I think that's when it was started. It's a ministry that it's organized through a, a particular person in the county, and Katie is going to be part of that team, where she's going to go into local elementary schools. So what, what schools would those be?
1: Mrs. Inouye, Versailles, and Union City.
0: Mrs. Inouye, Versailles, and Union City. She's going to go in once a week as a teacher, after school hours, right? Mm-hmm. But in a classroom or library or something. And any kids who want to can stay after school, and they can come, and you're going to teach them from the scriptures key Christian truths. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. All right. So, so it's a voluntary thing. like It's being promoted in all the different schools.
1: Well, I'm being paid for
0: it. But... No, I mean it's voluntary oh, yeah. for them to come. Yeah. Yeah. So they can stay after school, and they can learn from you mm-hmm. about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about walking as a Christian, all yeah. that stuff. As you can imagine, there's a fair amount of fear and overwhelming fear, uh, feeling inside of K2 right now, right? Yes. Um, As you think about this ministry that's going to start this next week, right, what would you like us to pray for you about?
1: Um, I would say that I rely on the Spirit instead of, like, just trying to come up with stuff to say and just that I rely on the Word of God, too, and not just my theology that I have in my head.
0: Okay, so not rely on yourself, but rely on the Spirit, leading you in the Word of God to say the things that they need to say. Mm-hmm. What else would you want us to pray for you about? Um,
1: well, I need, I need to have volunteers as okay. soon as I find out how many people, or how many kids, so that'd be helpful to know like where to reach out to people. So. So, and then,
0: if, if you guys got some free time and you'd like to help Katie Elliott reach out to these students in their school environment, um, you can talk to her after the worship service to find out. For those who are in the Versailles School District, what is the, the age range for the students or the grade range?
1: The grade range is grades one through six. One through six? Or one through four, one through sorry. Four. I have a lot okay. of stuff to keep track of. And
0: do you know when they'll be meeting in Versailles?
1: Yeah, 305 to 415 in the study hall room. By the cafeteria, D-147. Okay,
0: so 305, in the study hall by the cafeteria, on what day of the week? Wednesday. And will that start this Wednesday? hmm This Wednesday? This Wednesday. Versailles. Okay, so if you got a Versailles student who's brought some information home, now you've got more of the story. You can send them to that weekday Christian education, and they can invite their friends, they can hear the gospel, and learn how to grow in Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. right. We're going to pause and we're going to pray for Katie as she goes on mission using the gifts that God has given her, in the power of the Holy Spirit. She doesn't know how God's going to use her, but she's going to find out in the next few weeks. So let's pray for her. Father, thank you for Katie and for her eagerness to, to love and serve and proclaim the gospel to students in these three school districts. Thank you for providing her that opportunity, and that's even, even a paid job. It's an extra bonus to her. Thank you for those who have been serving in this ministry for decades in Dark County, and we pray that Katie would be able to learn from them and uh, get up to speed quickly in this new endeavor. I pray that you would be going before her, that you'd be bringing exactly the students that you want to have involved in this. I pray especially for the Versailles group, Lord, which will be the brand new school. They just haven't had this before, and uh, so there's there's not a a track record there. There's not a, a reason for parents or students to to trust the program or to trust Katie. And so we pray that you would be working supernaturally to bring students that need to hear your gospel or be encouraged in the gospel, grow in their faith. And we pray that you'd use Katie and any volunteers that you bring to her to to love these students to help them grow in Christ. We pray that she would not rely on her own gifts, talents, abilities, or her learning, but that she would use all of those in submission to you and rely on you, Lord to empower her with the Holy Spirit. She can be on mission. Jesus name, Amen. All right, thanks, Katie. Give her a hand, please. All right, so that brings our preaching time to an end, and I'm going to check and see if we've got any questions. If you have not texted a question in, you could do it right now, and we'll see what we can get here. So let's look here. Um. So we've got somebody who asks, I have never known of anyone to speak in tongues, so how could we discern that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? Is there a particular trait, characteristic behavior that makes them stand out? All right, so what I think this person is asking is, um, well, first of all, clarification. As we walk through Acts, we're going to see how this, uh, well, we, maybe today in the church, we use this phrase of speaking in tongues, and we, we usually mean two or three different things by it in the various churches that are around us. What's taking place in Acts 2 here is clearly supernaturally empowered natural speech. They're speaking and hearing in established languages. There is argument about whether or not what we see later in the New Testament where there seems to be a supernaturally empowered, supernatural language, not a human language, that's referred to as speaking in tongues, whether that whether or not that is something that is is still given as a gift today. We will talk about that in the future as we go through Acts, as one of the things that has divided churches, uh, split denominations, all kinds of things. So we've got to be careful how we do that. But I think what this person is asking is, look, we, we don't, he doesn't particularly, know anybody who is showing this kind of evidence, whether it's speaking miraculously in a natural language or speaking in a supernatural language. Therefore, how can we know if someone is a Christian, is filled with the Spirit? Wouldn't it be nice if every time the Spirit fills somebody, there was some kind of obvious outward manifestation like that and there are some churches and denominations that teach that that unless you have spoken in tongues you are not saved and the spirit is not inside of you and i entirely reject that and we will see as we go through acts why i reject that but wouldn't that be convenient except you can fake it i've known lots of people have faked it. I I have witnessed people who deny the divinity of Christ giving the exact same performance as I see in churches that proclaim the divinity of Christ. So even if it was that obvious, it wouldn't actually be that obvious. The, The best way, the best evidence for the Spirit in someone's life comes to us in Galatians 5 where we see a list referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're a tree and you're bearing fruit, the fruit identifies you as a particular kind of tree. Oranges grow on orange trees. Apples grow on apple trees. Spirit fruit grows on spirit trees. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, Self-control, those fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, is a good place to start. Is this person who is claiming to be a Christian, who has not spoken in tongues or done this amazing thing that is a a more obvious seal, is that person growing in the fruit of the Spirit because they are becoming more Christ-like? If the answer is yes, you have reason to affirm and trust in their proclamation of salvation. If the answer is no, well, this person is becoming less loving uh, he's just as impatient as he was before, he's not gentle, he's, you know, all of the, if the answer is no to those things, then you have reason to conclude that the Spirit is not in that person, or at least not being allowed to work and mature in that person. You should question whether or not that person really is in Christ, because the fruit growing on the tree suggests that it's a different kind of tree. So, I hope that answers that question. That's a good question. Let's do uh, Maybe one more here. Uh, How does the Spirit work in our lives? All right, that's good. So the Spirit works in our lives in different ways in each of us, but in some common ways. So they working through the inspired Word of God, working through prayer, working through fellowship with each other, conviction of sin. It's like once you become a Christian, you're not perfect. You're not living without sin the rest of your life. And one of the key roles of the Spirit is to convict you of that sin. Sometimes it's even before the sin. like You're like, I'm thinking about this particular thing, but I'm feeling this conviction come upon me, and I think it's the Holy Spirit sin run the other way. right? Or I have sin, and the Spirit puts this weight on us in order to draw us to repentance, not to crush us, not to condemn us, but to draw us to repentance, back into fellowship with God, His role is comforter, not condemner. The Spirit empowers us supernaturally to do the work that God has called us to do. The Spirit upholds us, comforts us, strengthens us. When you face a challenge, you think, naturally, I have no way of of facing this. I I can't do it. And the Spirit picks up all that slack and carries you and provides you with the strength or the wisdom or the perseverance or whatever it is you need. The Spirit works in your life that way. Those are some of the ways that the Spirit works in us. Another way He works is He helps us understand and apply what God has given us in His Scripture. So not just on Sunday mornings, but in your own Bible reading. Sometimes you open it up, you're like, what in the world, this makes no sense to me, but let me encourage you to pause and say, Lord, please use your spirit to help me understand what is in this word, because my brain is so scattered right now, and I'm paying attention to what the kids are doing, and I don't know, I can't make sense, Lord, please make sense of this for me. Spirit delights in answering a prayer like that. Spirit, take the word that you've inspired and help me understand it through the indwelling of your spirit, and help me know how to apply it to my life course, he's going to want to answer that. So, good question. Uh, let's, let's just do one more. Um, were there indications that the occurrence at the Tower of Babel would be reversed in this way of speaking in all languages? So, I think what this person is asking, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you got the Tower of Babel experience where the people are, of the earth all have a single language and they're working together trying to build this big, tower that they're so proud of that we could actually reach the heavens, like we could become like God, and then God scatters them and gives them all the different languages, and we get a map similar to what we looked at before, but with different names as they scattered out in all the directions. You may remember that from our Genesis series. I think the person is asking, were there specific prophecies in the Old Testament that said, someday Babel is going to be reversed, And then Pentecost is the fulfillment of that. That's a good question. I cannot think of, off the top of my head, any specific promises that would say the reversal of Babylon is going to come. But what we see on the day of Pentecost is effectively a reversal of Babylon. Because God supernaturally intercedes in that particular moment, intervenes in order to bring people of divided languages together in order to hear the gospel of jesus so to the person who asked that question good question i'll have to do a little research if any of you know the answer to that can you point to a specific place in the old testament that said basically god's going to reverse Babel at one point i would i would love to know that and share it with you guys next week all right thank you for participating with the text in church and the the questions thank you for listening i'm going to pray for us we're going to have a, a moment of reflection, Daniel and the team's going to come back up and lead us in one more song. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in your word this morning. Thank you for those who uh, sent in the questions, even those questions that I just didn't get to. Thank you that uh, you work through your people to bring out the things that other members of your body need to hear. Thank you that you worked, Holy Spirit, through the things that were taking place today and this week. So you worked in the preparation for the preaching. You worked in the delivery. You worked in the people asking questions. You worked in the hearing and the understanding. Lord, please work in the application too that we would not simply receive this information but that we would know what is a next step for us to take in order to be goers and sharers of the gospel as you give us that mission. We... We want to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but we do not want to wait disobediently longer than we should wait. So We know that you send us out, and we pray that you would give us courage to do that, you would help us to, to rightly discern how you want us to be going about the mission that you've given your church. In Jesus' name, amen.